0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Previously on the Mike Wise Show.
2: Darlene, you just described this entire show. This is the best of Mike Wise 2.0. That's right. This time, it's personal. We started the show in January of 2019, and this week we're looking back at some of our most interesting discussions. But first, Darlene, do your thing.
1: The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise ass, and so are many of his guests. Right,
2: Mike? Jason Whitlock of Fox Sports is a good friend with whom I disagree frequently. In fact, we agree on practically nothing. Jason is a well-known contrarian who loves stirring things up. Recently, we were discussing the value of coaches expressing their opinions on social issues. In Whitlock's beloved NFL, coaches usually avoid speaking out. But in the NBA, there are coaches like Steve Kerr and Greg Popovich were not shy about addressing societal issues. I'm not, I'm not saying the NBA uh, it doesn't have its own flaws. Uh, if, if, we're, if we're talking about leagues that are interested in having uh, coaches and players uh, express Blackboard themselves, express, well, do you have one coach that will talk like Popovich or Steve Kerr? Thank God! Thank,
3: you... God yeah, thank God we don't. Thank God the NFL why? doesn't. Well, why because she... Popovich why... and Kerr aren't qualified, Mike. They're damn gym teachers trying to run into the history class and tell everybody what they should be doing in history.
2: They're they're just as. They're, they're just as qualified as you and I to speak about social justice and, and Which we're not that qualified, Mike. All right. Well, but I said you still have your views and I still have my views about it. So why wouldn't they be able to, I, I have no problem with those guys speaking. I don't look at them as, I, know I don't, you don't look don't at them as, I don't look at them as Cornell West and, and uh, Todd Boyd, but I certainly will listen to them uh, because they they actually them perform
3: are, for them to virtue signal for them to put on it's a
2: slogan it's a gimmick i don't you think so you don't think there's conviction they're just trying to basically um ingratiate themselves to their black players absolutely that's the wow. number one priority wow I, I i i'd reject that i mean come on i know a guy can't have a conviction a guy can't have a conviction about something it has to be for a reason Yeah, Mike. Because trust me, Mike. Let me me ask you. Let me ask you. As much
3: as you love Pop and Kerr for all that left wing bullshit they spew, (laughs) if one of these coaches or one of these players, black or white, came out and argued the other side, they would be crucified. It takes no courage to do what Pop and Kerr are doing. None. They get celebrated and applauded, and you all pretend like, "Oh my god,
2: these I don't guys know are about so that. courageous." They, they, they get killed. They, they, they get killed they by their don't own fan Are you kidding me, Mike? They get, they get killed by fan bases and their other people that oh, are more stop conservative. It. They just got killed by you. You're a pretty big voice in the media. They get killed by who's that other wag? One guy, guy from uh, Clay Travis. Yeah, they, one guy. One. Guy. Guy. Come on, Mike. You're, you're not, but I, I look. Well, here's where we agree: if you're good, if if we're going to celebrate somebody saying the the president is a you know a white supremacist, we also have to we also have to be at least tolerant, if not accepting, of athletes and coaches who come out on the other side. Kurt Schilling which might be a little do, bit rash,
0: but which but,
3: none do, and and I'm glad they don't, to be honest with you, because they all need to stay out of it, not qualify. It's just virtue signaling. Again, you won't see me standing out here screaming anything about politics because, first, I'm not qualified.
2: One guest who is qualified to comment on Kerr and Pop is a man who won rings with both as an assistant coach. Mike Brown won his first championship as Pop's assistant with the 2003 Spurs before becoming a head coach for the Cavaliers and Lakers. He's currently Steve Kerr's top assistant at Golden State. And you would certainly disagree with Jason's virtue signaling tag about Pop.
1: What I learned working for Greg Popovich is to empower those, those guys. Because when you do, you're always going to get uh, something in return. And some of the things that you may get in return may help your team win a crucial ball game in a seven-game series during your playoff run. So if you empower those guys because of their feel, because of their intelligence – You'll get a whole lot return coming back because uh, they're more than just gifted basketball players
2: out on the floor. Pop did more than just empower his players; he did the same with his assistant coaches. And the Spurs brand of emotional intelligence can be found all over the league as former Spurs move into other organizations, such as Golden State. I was thinking about the other day: the Spurs and the Warriors just have so much. You talk about family, you, you. you have Steve – I look um, – Bruce Bernstein, a man we both know, and you worked with at ESPN for a while. He sent me a – he texted me a photo of a Spurs um, – a Spurs coach, you know, Spurs roster photo, and seated on the left-hand side is you, Mike B- Budenholzer, uh, Bud, and um, – oh, shoot, P.J. Carlissimo. I mean, and, and then right next to – right next to him was R.C. Buford. So, I mean – there's a lot of success out of that organization, and it's amazing to me that that. Uh, oh, and Brett Brown was on a staff as well. I mean, he's he's now coaching. I mean, you must run into these guys all the time and talk San Antonio still. I, yeah, I
1: – Pop
2: is like the Godfather. I mean, it,
1: <laughs> I, I, there's there's somebody. In, I think there's probably somebody in every single organization out there that has come through San Antonio at some point uh, in time in their in their careers. Uh, Pop just, he does a phenomenal job. Pop and RC they do a phenomenal job of, of uh, you know, trying to find the right people to come work for their organization. And then, you know, you learn a lot, you grow a lot while, while being there, and they, they help you get to a point to where, you know, you're able to go break off on your own and do your own thing. And uh, not only, not you know, not only as a as an assistant coach or assistant GM or front office guy, you, you know, uh, coming through there, for instance, Sam Presti, that's where he got his start. and He's the GM president of Oklahoma City. But not mm-hmm. only as a, you know, as a coach or front office guy, <laughs> excuse me, but also uh, as a player, you know, two guys, if that's the same team that I'm thinking of, you know, you got two guys on that team in Danny Ferry and, and Steve Kerr who uh obviously yep. have had a lot of success as GMs and, and uh coaches.
2: Yeah, and, they were play, they were and, both players on that team.
1: Correct. So 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 you know, you go down the line, you see different guys, whether it be uh as a player or uh as an assistant coach or a front office guy come through that organization, uh, a lot of them have have, have uh, had success there and, and, and broken off from there and, and gone on to do some special things in the
2: in the league hall of famer dave cowens was an assistant coach in san antonio but he left the year before pop started with the spurs the former celtics great was no stranger to aggressive play on the court he was one of the fiercest competitors of his era and whether it was battling kareem in the nba finals or just playing pickup ball in east orange new jersey his intensity was off the charts you probably don't remember this one but because it was more um, a part of someone else's life than yours but um, when I was writing Shaquille O'Neal's autobiography and uh, basically ghostwriting it for him about 20 years ago um, I spent a lot of time in Apopka Florida with his parents including his stepfather Phil Harrison and Phil Harrison besides telling me some great anecdotes about Shaquille when he was little he said he goes and I go well, I said you played you were a pretty tough guy and he goes He goes, he goes, well, I I thought I was good. And I go, what happened? He goes, well, one day in New Jersey, I'm playing pickup with Dave Cowens and he knocked my teeth out. (laughs) He said he took an elbow or something from you on the playgrounds of, uh, I don't know if it was Newark or somewhere in that area. And I'm going, you don't remember
4: um, knocking out anybody's teeth do you um, outside of the NBA. Well, it that that did happen. I was uh, visiting a teammate of mine at um in East Storms and they had a playground that everybody went to and different factions, you know, different neighborhoods would come to this one place. And um you know, we were just playing um and um all of a sudden, you know, a, a big fight broke out and some guy was on my back and I'm trying to get him off my back and I'm looking around going since I'm the only pale face in the, in the area, I'm going, this, this is not good. I'm, I'm but anyway, um, things worked out and uh, we survived. And so, so you, so, the, so he, you, the he interesting exited, part so I had still- no idea that the reason it started was because I must've inadvert- inadvertently done something because, you know, um, he says I knocked his teeth out. I don't remember doing it. I don't know how it happened. And that's the way it is. Most of the time, if you, if you do something like that, you don't even know you did it. And, um, but the, the funny part of the story was that when Shaquille came into the league, I think it was Penny Hardaway and some other guys that class. I was involved with the um, rookie orientation program for the NBA. It was re- when it was just starting. And we were in these classes, a two or three day affair down. I think it was in Dallas, Texas at the time. Okay. And, um, we were in a room, like a classroom and we had, uh, psychologist there and we had an you know an older guy and a younger newly retired guy and Shaquille and these guys were in my the classroom so you know we're after the class Shaquille comes up to me and I'm looking up at him he goes hey he says you knocked my dad's two front teeth out I looked (laughs) up at him I said I said you're not going to hurt me, are you? <laughs> and he started laughing. Uh, so um, that was, did, that was the funny part. of.
2: It. Oh, that's great. Phil Harrison yeah, had did. a story until he passed, uh, about Dave Cowens. Uh, oh, that's great. See, boy, you you almost start a race, ride, And years later, Shaquille O'Neal. Oh and my years, God. Yeah. That's-
4: a race mm-hmm. ride. It was me. It was one white guy. And then the whole, <laughs> <laughs> Within miles, you know I said well, yeah, I'm, but I had my guys with there, the guys that I was visiting with, yeah. but you know it was um we we you know it was just a, just a pickup game, so you never know what's gonna happen
2: yeah i um I remember uh talking uh to Larry one year about how he, he you know I said, what is it like being a white guy in a black league and being a white star in a black league, and he said, you know it's like anything if if, if you grow six, nine, and whether you're from Indiana or Kuwait, you know, and you, and you work hard and you play, you, you can make it in the league. And I, I remembered at the time, um, obviously the NBA was, was a fair skin when you played than it is now Billy Hunter, even the executive players director. And, and Larry said at one point, like, if this league's ever going to take off, really take off, you need another American born white superstar. I look at what's happened in this league and how much LeBron James and Steph Curry, all these guys have become crossover stars. And and before anybody looks at their skin color, they look at the player they are. I don't know if you need I don't know if you need it. I mean, it, it'd be nice just for diversity's sake. But I don't know if you need an American born white superstar anymore.
4: Well, I think that's that, you know, uh, you have questions about that, about why there aren't. Um, as many american-born white players but you don't have to worry about that because it's an international game and and uh, all the white people are from other countries in 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 this league now i think i think i um i think there's only maybe 30 to 40 white players in the nba from the united states yes right now you know out of 450 so a country that you know as big as we are um, it's, it's, it's unique and it's curious as to why you don't have more uh, American-born white players in the NBA right now. While there are fewer American-born white players in the NBA,
2: the fans and media seem to notice race more than the guys who play the game. Hall of Famer Chris Mullen was Larry Bird's teammate on the Olympic Dream Team and also played for Bird in Indiana. While Molly and Larry may be white, they never cared about the skin color of their teammates or their opponents. Did you guys ever have a conversation about the great white hope thing? You and Larry? No, 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 not never. No,
3: we never even looked at at anything but can you play? Yeah. Can can you play? That's all it was.
2: It's amazing to me how people outside the NBA would, like, in some ways – the way in which Tiger is looked at on the golf course, like, hey, there's a racial yeah. identification there. I want to look, see somebody who looks like me play. To me, there was so much of that going on with you and Bird and shoot, whoever, you know, Kevin Love now, J.J. Redick. And I look at it and I go, you know, it's one thing to racially identify. It's another thing if you only like players that look like you. Yeah.
4: yeah.
1: Wait, no, did,
3: you just say,
2: did, you just, did you just say you're going to play at five?
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I live on a golf course. This guy just pulled up. And he hit a ball in my he hit a ball in my front yard. He, he says, "You're gonna play that guy?" Yeah. When the sun goes down, I'm gonna play. Yeah, I'm gonna. Play that's just
2: that's, a, that's just disappointing to me, Molly, because I thought you were saying I thought you were gonna get into a run. It's gonna be the three no, on three women. No.
3: <laughs> I mean, that's about it right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. oh, that's great. No, but but look, to to, to me, the basketball has always been the, the greatest. Um, connected in people with people yeah you know, it, 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 it crosses
2: race it crosses a creed crosses nations i mean you're right no doubt
3: it's a beautiful thing and like i said in the 70s going up to harlem and just just playing ball man and just getting accepted yeah. as, and, and then those people are friends of mine to this day and it's really because of basketball it broke down barriers man it's, it's just a beautiful thing and it, it never it never came up ever 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 it was just can you play <laughs> <laughs>
2: I love that story because Bird said the exact same thing about 20 years ago when I interviewed him about, you know, hey, if you're from Kuwait and you're 6'9 and you can handle a ball or you can shoot, you know, you're going to find a way. And he, to this day, uh, I, I, it's good to hear that. While Bird never worried about skin color on the court, he didn't shy away from having an opinion about the issue. When journalist J.A. Adonde joined the show, we discussed Bird's unintentional legacy is one of the greatest Caucasian players ever. I, I remember Larry Bird and Billy Hunter almost at the same time had quotes saying, the league needs another American born white superstar to really take off. And it, it's not because it's racist, it's just because people wanna see people that look like them and are from them, their area, the, the, the season ticket buyers. And I'm not saying that every NBA star has crossed over to um, not a black guy, just a ball player. But I I do feel like we you know they're the, the the greatest whatever white star I can think of that's from America now I mean JJ Reddick Kevin Love maybe uh, uh, Gordon Hayward I mean I don't think and those guys aren't even like in the top fifteen players so I guess what yeah. I'm getting at getting at is do we even need have we gone I'm not I'm not saying the rate the that anything in America is post racial that's the worst term of all but are we past the notion that we need an American-born white superstar for for the NBA to thrive the way it did in the Bird Magic Michael days, um, I, I think I think we bought into these guys so much that it doesn't matter.
5: I think Larry Bird's greatest legacy is that we don't need another Larry Bird right now. We absolutely ah, needed him in, in the nineteen eighties. Absolutely, that, that you know it, it's funny people say Magic and, and I've, I I bought into that too, and I came up with that, and you know I was raised on that Lakers Celtics rivalry magic and Magic Bird. And it was always Magic Bird, Magic Bird. And really the more I think about it, you needed Bird, right? If if it Mm. was Magic versus Jordan, I don't think you would have had the success that the NBA enjoyed in the eighties and the foundation that was laid for today if if it had been two two African American players. But the fact Mm. that Larry Bird was white, American born, was, you know, multiple M V P and a champion, the league needed that at that time. And um I think basketball fans have evolved past it. You know, the the league will be fine without another Murray Bird coming around. I think it could go to new heights. It it could go up a level. I think if we yeah. were to have another one, but the the very existence of the league, which maybe the existence wasn't threatened, but it it was certainly on the ropes before mm-hmm. they got there. Remember, the the games were on tape delay, right? Oh, as the NBA Finals yeah. were being shown at ten thirty p.m. on tape delay. No, was, um, you know, yeah. and, and you wouldn't have had this, this boom that you've had. And I, I think we've gotten to the point now where, you know, like a, a Jokic can be embraced. Um, you know, look at Dirk Nowitzki's popularity in Dallas. Um, and how many athletes in Dallas do you think are more popular than Dirk Nowitzki right now, even though he's born in Germany? Um, but he's like, he's one of them.
2: Dirk Nowitzki is the greatest Dallas Maverick ever. He just completed a 21-year NBA career, all with the same team. During his final 11 years, his head coach was Rick Carlisle. They won the 2011 NBA championship together. And if you ever wondered how important a player can be to a coach beyond the wins and losses, just listen to Rick talk about Dirk. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about Dirk and just what what the post Maverick light post Maverick Dirks are going to be like, I, I just remember being, you guys coming to town to Washington and you spoke so fondly of him. And I remember whatever he said, I just remember thinking, this is it. I knew it was it. He hadn't announced his retirement yet, but I just, the way things were winding down, there was a genuine affection on both your parts. And there was a sort of like, we know this is going to be probably the end of the run. What are you, what are you going to miss most?
6: Well the person <laughs> you know yeah dirk dirk the just one of the the great people um just in terms of character um intrinsic values with with respect to how he approached his job, the game, being a great teammate, those kinds of things, um a completely selfless superstar that um wanted to be coached and you know made – you know, allowed himself to be unconditionally coached by whoever whoever it was, whether it was Don Nelson, Avery Johnson, or or myself. And, uh, you know, the three of us, you know, I've had conversations with Nellie and Avery um, about Dirk over the years, and, you know, we all gushed the same things, the same – you know the the same praises, the same you know mm. descriptions of wow. You know this guy's just so different. He's just so he's just 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 not your typical superstar. He's so great, and you know it's just you you, you can go on and on and on. And so uh, you know, it, but I think one of the things that became a reality at the end was you know the last couple of years were difficult. Um, the the physical challenges for You know, being, you know, 39 and 40 years old, um, presented themselves. Uh, there was surgery headed into the last year, which, um, which Dirk, Dirk thought was going to be, you know, a positive thing. We thought it was going to be a positive thing. The recovery ended up to be longer and more difficult. And, you know, so he didn't, he didn't get on the court until mid December.
2: Yeah, that's right.
6: of Of 2018. And it was just, um, it was just a really tough, a uh, really tough way for him to have to go out. Now, at the very end of the season, you know he had <laughs> he had 50 points in the last two games, back to back, home against Phoenix, on the road against San Antonio, and a couple of amazing tributes. You know, the one at home, you know where, um, you know he went for 30 points in his last home game. That was the night he announced that it would be his last home game um five of his the guys that he really uh worshiped and emulated um coming up through the years were there as a surprise tribute um uh, Charles Barkley, Sean Kemp was one of his favorite guys, Scotty Pippen um, Yeah. Deadlift Shrimp and uh and it was just uh it, it was just such a special moment, and then you know that that thing went on for an hour after the game. Then we had to get on a plane go to go to play in San Antonio the next night, and they had a they had a tribute to Dirk that was so emotional. Oh, uh, it was it brought tremendous. Him to, brought him to tears, you know, during yeah. during pregame warmups, and then he was able to go for twenty in that game, and um, you know, That's... so it was it was. Uh, It it was extremely special, and I, you know, uh, of all the accomplishments that he's had in this game, you know, scoring whatever it is, 32,000 points, you know, uh, being a a league MVP, a finals MVP, um, 13, 14-time All-Star, whatever it is, you know, to me the mere fact that he was able to get back on the floor and perform at that level, particularly down the stretch of the season, may may have been one of his most amazing accomplishments.
2: I, I completely agree with you. And I I look at all the guys who try and cut and paste their bodies back together to get to somewhere, you know, to, to that turn back the clock night. He had a turn back the clock few months that was just incredible. And is there any at any point, do you have a moment with him where you lose it almost or just like, geez, n- not just the 2011 NBA title, but just what what you guys have been through together, basketball and personal wise? And uh, is there is there a Rick Carlisle, Dirk Nowitzki moment that that I could share with my listeners or is or will you keep that between yourselves?
6: Well, you know, there there have been there have been many over the years, Um yeah you know our our team has changed a lot since the championship you know we we didn't bring back the same team following the championship and so you know really it's it's been um Dirk and I since that time have been the two that have have consistently been with the club so you know we've been through some of the ups and downs he he's been great through all that and and there there've been there've been some moments where you know I just I've just I've just gotten emotional you know about yeah what what he's meant to um, me and my family. I mean, I, you know, I've got a daughter now that's 15 years old who, um, you know, if I can uh, get through the next four years of my contract, will have been in pre-K, kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade in the same school in the same city. And that, you know, that just that just doesn't happen much in this business. And I don't know if you saw it, Mike, but yeah. in the ceremony after Dirk's last home game, you know, I had I had my daughter Abby out there, and yep. uh, I I talked just for a second about um, what it's meant to to my family, and then she ran over and gave him a hug, and that was that Not, was an emotional moment, you know. Yeah. So look, he's he's just he's just a very very special person, and. You know, I I can't wait for there to be a statue out in front of the American Airlines Center um, to pay ultimate tribute to what he's meant to both the Mavericks and the city.
2: Dirk and Hall of Fame journalist Mark Stein of The New York Times go back even further than Dirk and Rick. When Stein was on the Mavericks beat, he and Dirk spent many hours talking basketball life. And just as Nowitzki left a lasting mark on Coach Carlisle, he did the same with Mark. And I look at the Dirk 2010 year, or was it 2011? I can't remember. Was it 2010 or 11? 11. Uh, 11. 2011, that to me, and and I know you had developed a relationship with him over the years. That was a special championship to witness because, one, you really liked some of the people involved. But, two, that was the year to get LeBron. Like, they were not quite there yet. He was still having a confidence a meltdown in the, in the in the crucible of his career, and it was and Dirk just like I mean I don't think people remember Dirk's finger was messed up in that series. I thought they were done after like game two or something, and uh, and for them to come back and win that I don't know that must have been one of your most satisfying finals to cover.
0: Well, he you know he's someone obviously that I covered literally from his very first dribble in the NBA, and honestly, even before that, you know he was drafted. The Mavs acquired Nash and Nowitzki on the same day in '98. Then there was a lockout, and Dirk stayed in Germany. And I actually went to Germany to watch him play for his hometown club team before he even got to Dallas. So when Berkshire. you cover someone that, when you cover someone that long, and look, you you know this. I know you've done it in your career on various stories. When you go to someone's hometown and go all the way to the roots of where their career started, it just it changes your perspective on that player. It changes your relationship with the subject. So obviously there's no one probably in my life that I will cover from closer range than Novitski. But yeah, I mean, that that team, like you said, you know, in my time covering the league, you know, I felt like the 90, the first Rockets championship was a team Mm. and a lot of very good role players. I think that's what the Mavericks were in 2011. The Pistons, you know they they were you know maybe they didn't have a superstar per se but man they're you know their their top five or six players were really really good and I think the same thing with the Raptors you know there's there's Kawhi obviously on his own planet but Lowry's an All Star Gasol's a pretty recent All Star they're they're a much they're a much better group than advertised they're they're way better than we thought even when the finals started
2: I I, I agree and the I don't know I was jealous because Dirk Nowitzki is from my mother's hometown, Würzburg, and I um, and I've been there many times. And I remember seeing your reports from over there. And I think Rick Buecher went over eventually as well. And I always thought, you know, if you're going to go to Germany and you're going to uh, meet a guy's family and everything else, and he just he never had any big time about him too. I just I I think Dirk is one of the most most solid people I've ever met.
0: When I went there. He, I mean, just to show you just how sheltered a life he had lived to that point. So he's 19. Mm -hmm. And I said, let's, let's go eat. Let's go somewhere and eat. He didn't have a favorite restaurant. We drove around around in his Volkswagen Golf for like 45 minutes.
2: Wait, wait, he's 6'11", 7 feet. How does he, how does he drive a Volkswagen Golf?
0: That's all he had. That's what he had. And. And uh, we drove around for a good 45 minutes until he finally remembered the restaurant that they took, the Nelsons, when they made their trip to go to, <laughs> to Wurzburg and convince his parents to let him come straight to the NBA. So we yeah. ended up at that, at that same restaurant. And then I said, OK, I'm here. I need to talk to your parents. And the parents didn't want to talk to me either. So uh, luck- <laughs> luckily, I talked him into it. But that was a... Uh, yeah. That, was an in, that was an interesting tip-off to covering Dirk Nowitzki.
2: Dirk was a great player, while Jeff Van Gundy is a great coach and broadcaster. Jeff also attended Yale University as a freshman. And legend had it that Van Gundy almost dated a very famous movie actress while both were on Yale's New Haven, Connecticut campus. But does the reality match the myth? Did you ever go out with Jodie Foster, the actress? No. I, I choked. I, I choked love, at Yale. So I, I had my to.
7: chance. I had my chance and I blew it. And, like, uh, she went on the Rich Eisen show recently to promote a film, and Rich Eisen brought that up to her. And she said, Jeff and Gundy, not memorable.
2: Trust me. Trust me. <laughs> so people, people, people don't know the story. Jeff and Gundy was, uh, was accepted to Yale because it shows you how smart he is. He, um, he was a classmate with Jody Foster. He was, I believe, in the same dorm. And I think that you and your dorm mate or your dorm room crowd of guys decided, all right, we're going to put in 100 bucks each and see who gets to have the first date with her. Because at that point, she'd already been a taxi driver. She was a famous actress and she was beautiful and gorgeous and smart. And you're walking. Tell me. Tell the story about you have your shot. You're walking by the popcorn machine.
7: Yeah. So, uh We all lived in a freshman quadrangle, huge, at Yale, and um, in that freshman quadrangle, there was uh, a great candy shop right at the front, so I was coming back from the gym, and then right down the street, all these sirens came, and so I came to a stop right in front of the candy store uh, as all these sirens go by. I'm watching the sirens, and the popcorn smells great. And after the sirens uh, finished going by a voice from behind says, uh, man, that popcorn smells good. And I turn around and I'm about to say, yeah, it does. And it's her. And I stumbled, I stammered, and then I ran. And uh, I just took off without saying anything. And so uh, I choked at, to the, you know, most epic proportions. I lost, out on the $1,200, and I lost out on Meeting Sane, uh <laughs> right there. So,
2: yeah. Choke. So. I, I, I love it. Uh, your line afterwards, which I remember printing was, I, I, I vowed after that night that I would never be unprepared again. One man who is never unprepared is Buck's co-owner, Mark Lasry. In addition to his leadership of a rising franchise, he also has acting chops. And if you're a fan of the show Billions, you might see him on a future episode. I've you know, i heard a lot about you. I've listened to podcasts. I, I got to say, I, I also saw you in Billions once. And in hindsight, I'm a little disappointed. Mark Cuban got more airtime than you.
6: That's bullshit. It's just wrong.
2: <laughs> I, that's what I thought.
4: I know.
6: I'm such a better actor. It's it, not even close.
2: You can't even... I mean, he's better on Shark Tank, where he's sort of really nickel and diming the guys on, uh, uh, on the set. You actually throw some action in there what do you why do you think that happened
6: um i don't know i think it was just the way they ended up doing the show uh the the one i was on was an ideas dinner yeah so it was kind of different um i was supposed to be on it again this year but i was traveling so i couldn't do it so i'll I'll come back next year for a bigger and better part
2: (laughs) you turned down billions (laughs) sorry um i uh I, 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 I do wait. have a day job. All right, let's
1: go. Time to stick the landing.
2: I'll do my best, Darlene. Hope you enjoyed the best of Mike Wise 2.0. This time it's personal. Thanks to producer Bruce Bernstein, editor Ben Wolfen for their work in creating this special show. Please listen to all of our Pure Hoops media shows. Buckets, boards, and blocks with Monica McNutt as Hall of Famer Nancy Lieberman this week. Nancy's stories are incredible. Catch and Shoot is always available, and the Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and my friend Eric Newman has a new show each Friday. Thanks for listening. I'll see you again next week. Peace out, you hoop heads.
1: The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.